This is D.L. Hudson. Welcome to Church and Culture. This show is devoted to exploring the interaction between our faith and our culture. Each week, I will talk with expert guests on topics ranging from literature, art, and music to politics, liturgy, spirituality, and education. Thank you for joining us. Well, it's been too long since I had Dr. Ed Baser on the show. Last time he was on, we talked about one of his 12 books called Aristotle's Revenge. This time we're going to talk about another of his books. I think it's very timely and very important. It's entitled All One in Christ, a Catholic Critique of Racism and Critical Race Theory, just released by Ignatius Press. And before we talk about it, let me tell you about a little more about Ed Faser. You may recall that he's a writer and philosopher living in Los Angeles with his wife and six kids. He teaches philosophy at Pasadena City College. Primary academic interests are philosophy of mind, moral and political philosophy, and philosophy of religion. He also writes on politics from a conservative point of view, and on religion from a traditional Roman Catholic perspective. He's written for all the major publications. Uh, he has a wonderful blog spot. If you want to go to edwardfazer.blogspot.com, edwardfazer.blogspot.com. Ed, welcome back to Church and Culture. Thanks for having me back. Good to be back. Well, this book is just, I think, was so needed. I think it's an important book. All of our listeners who are battling with the attacks on Catholicism as being inherently racist, as being an inherently anti-this and that, but especially on the issue of race, uh, should rush and buy your book. And I must say, the, the thing you do at the very beginning, and I want to talk about that, is so important. You remind all of us how as far back as the 15th century, the Catholic Church has condemned racism. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, there's this idea abroad that somehow the Catholic Church has, has had to catch up with the rest of the modern world in condemning racism and condemning slavery. And probably a lot of people have the idea that somehow this only really happened at uh, Vatican II. And nothing could be further from the truth. You find consistently for 500 years, going back to the beginnings of the modern slave trade, for example, that the popes, the early modern popes, repeatedly and consistently condemned um, the enslavement of the Native American peoples and the African peoples that the uh, Europeans were just starting to interact with. And the, the condemnations became increasingly strident. So first you had condemnations of the practice of stripping uh, these peoples of their liberty and enslaving them, and um, popes forbidding uh, Catholics from doing this. And then you had the threat of excommunication added to that. And then later still, because there were you know lots of Catholics then as now who don't obey the Church's teaching on various things, later still you had popes who had to issue not only uh, threats of excommunication for, for those who are disobeying this command, but also um, forbidding even debating the matter and dissenting from church teaching on this. Now, of course, it took some time for slavery finally to be abolished in the West, but that's not because the Pope somehow and the church was somehow in favor of it or, uh, or winked at it or turned a blind eye to it. It's rather, um, despite the fact that the church and the popes consistently condemned it, and specifically condemn the idea that uh, any race was somehow inferior to the others and could therefore be enslaved. So you have this the level of papal teaching. You also have it in the um, in the uh, the teaching of uh, many of the great scholastics. Uh, I discuss this in the book as well. And, I, and by the way, in the book, I provide generous quotes and references for all this, so people can see just how explicit the Church was going back 500 years. Uh, but you also have thinkers like Francisco de Vitoria and Bartolomeo de las Casas who hammered out the theoretical rationale of this condemnation of um, chattel slavery 
and condemnation of racism or the idea that some races were somehow morally inferior to others and therefore could be enslaved. There were uh, Catholic intellectuals of the day who disagree with this, but the view of Vittoria and de las Casas is the one that won out, and it was the one that was uh, uh, reflected in papal teaching. So the Church has been very consistent about this, and when you find condemnations of these things in Vatican II, that's by no means some novelty. That's just right. reiterating what had already been said for five centuries. I'm talking to Ed Fazer about his book, All One in Christ, A Catholic Critique of Racism and Critical Race Theory, just released from Ignatius Press. And it's very readable, and as he just said, it gives you chapter and verse of support for his claim and for the truth that the Church, from the beginning of the uh, European colonization of the Americas, of the West Indies, as they called it, uh, was condemning of turning the indigenous peoples of these areas into slaves. And you really start off with a zinger when you, you have a long quote from Pope Paul III from his 19, excuse me, his 1537 bull, Sublimus Deus. Tell us about that, because that really dropped my jaw. It really is a, an amazing passage, and uh, I don't have it in front of me now, but I know the passage you're, you're talking about. And what's, what's amazing about it is not just that he condemns uh, this racial slavery that was beginning to be practiced in the New World, but he does it in terms that are about as, um, uh, you know, about as... Um, uh, rigorous as you can imagine he for example he he um, attributes to the devil uh, this idea that um, uh, some races could be enslaved by uh, by Catholics by Europeans and so forth he doesn't just say it's wrong he characterizes it as, as satanic so that's pretty strong language but he also uses the the uh, when he issues his condemnation he says uh, I declare and define that these peoples must not be Enslaved. Now, this is this is the sort of language that uh, popes tend to use when they're making some definitive uh, yes, declaration on a matter of faith yeah. and morals, right? An ex cathedra um, uh, definition. So that's pretty strong language. So, it, so uh, as you say, this is an amazing document. Not only because it shows just how early were the papal uh, condemnations of this sort of thing. But they were in no way tentative. They, you know, the, the, for one thing, again, the practices were condemned in the harshest possible terms, characterized as satanic. And the, the doctrinal principles were proclaimed with the maximum possible authority. Again, he uses this language of declaring and defining. Well, and I'm going to read just a section of this that you referred to. Um, and this again, Pope Paul III in 1537, we define and declare that Notwithstanding whatever may have been or may be said to the contrary, the said Indians and all other peoples who may later be discovered by Christians are by no means to be deprived of their liberty or the possession of their property, even though they may be outside the faith of Jesus Christ, and that they may and should freely and legitimately enjoy their liberty and the possessions of their property, nor should they be in any way enslaved. Should the contrary happen, it shall be null and have no effect. I mean, this is an example of a pope challenging the very profitable, and let's underscore that, profitable uh, use of indigenous peoples to work for the European and, and Catholic, and they were Catholic at the time, the colonizers. And yeah. it's uh, it's really an example of a pope standing up to the culture very strongly. Absolutely. And I should add here that part of the misconception uh, here, this idea that some of the church had to catch up, um, owes to a failure that's often, uh, a failure people often make to distinguish uh, different senses of the word slavery, and I discuss this in the book as well. So what most people think of these days when they hear the word slavery is what's traditionally called chattel slavery, which involves ownership of another human being in this sort of way you might own an animal or a piece of property. And it's the sort of thing that existed in the American South uh, before the Civil War, 
and it's the sort of thing that all people rightly regard now with horror and condemn and so forth, and the Church certainly has condemned that, and the Church has always condemned that. But that's to be distinguished from other practices of a, a lesser sort, a lesser sort of servitude, such as, for example, penal servitude, which sometimes called penal servitude, which is um, servitude that one person may owe another in punishment for a crime. Just like, you know, you know, you might think of chain gangs, for example, in old movies, you know, prisoners are out working on the road or yeah. whatever, a chain gang. Or there's indentured servitude, where someone owes service to another for a prolonged period of time in payment of a debt. Um, so that's kind of like owing someone money, but just in an extreme way, to the point where you owe them so much that you owe them your labor for a prolonged period of time. Now, the Church traditionally has not condemned practices like that as intrinsically evil, because they're just extensions of things which are obviously not intrinsically evil. Punishing someone or taking their liberty from them, like you would if you put someone in prison, is not intrinsically wrong. And um, uh, owing someone money or trying to collect money or a debt from someone is not intrinsically wrong. So these would be extreme examples of that, penal servitude and indentured servitude. But a couple of points to make here. First of all, Again, that's the sort of thing the Church uh, traditionally said was not intrinsically wrong, or wrong of its very nature. But that's very different from chattel slavery, where you take complete possession of a person and deprive them of their liberty. You know, they're totally innocent. You just take them uh, uh, possession of their persons and, and, uh, and their labor and treat them as if they were animals or pieces of property. The Church has never approved of that. The Church has always condemned that. And that's different from penal servitude and indentured servitude. Secondly, the view prevailed, came to prevail in Catholic theology and in the magisterium of the Church, that even penal servitude and indentured servitude, which again are very different from chattel slavery, and it's not the kind of thing that was going on in the American South and so forth, that even those practices are so morally hazardous, and they have a tendency to degenerate into a chattel slavery, yes, yes. that it's better just to get rid of them altogether. Uh, so that their legitimacy in theory is purely theoretical and can't be justified in practice. But again, that's different from chattel slavery and the kind of thing that was practiced in the New World and in, and in uh, the African slave trade and all that, which the Church never approved of. So this is another part of the problem. People don't know the history of Church teaching on yeah. this, and they also fail to make these distinctions. And well, sometimes another, they uh... fail to make them. Sometimes I was going to add a further point here. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the, the failure to make this distinction, you know, one wonders whether it's deliberate, because people like to say things like, well, the Church changed her teaching on slavery, which is not true. Right. But they like to say that because they want to use it as a stalking horse for changing other teachings. So there's sometimes a larger ideological project going on behind the scenes here that leads people to make these false claims about uh, Catholic tradition on this subject. Am I right in saying that the Dominican Bartel... Bartolomeo de la Casas actually had face-to-face -face experience of this in the West Indies, in the Caribbean islands. And it was his personal experience of, him, of this, seeing this, that led him to write his famous book, In Defense of Indians. Yeah, it was very, with de las Casas, he's an interesting case because there's a lot of passion in his writing on this that, that owed precisely to that awareness of the of the details of the um, of the brutality with which the uh, the Spanish were um, the Portuguese I guess were treating uh, Native Americans. So it was not just a, a guy, some scholastic guy, like sitting in, a, in an office somewhere spinning out a theory. Uh, but he had a deep personal revulsion and uh, took deep personal offense at this treatment. And so um, there's a lot of passion there in his argumentation, and not just. Um, not just old-fashioned scholastic abstract reasoning. You know, I'm. I think it's important to mention and maybe discuss a little bit that both Vittoria and De Los Casas found their arguments on the understanding of what constitutes human nature, and that is rationality, and that the word barbarian cannot be ascribed to these peoples. That's right. They do have, you know, despite what I just said, they do also have um, uh, very rigorous, abstract, philosophical arguments against the idea that somehow there could be, even in theory, a race of people 
that was somehow subhuman or sub-intellectual and therefore, for all intents and purposes, amounted to just brutes who could be enslaved. And they argued on general scholastic principles that this, this first of all, that this did not apply to uh, peoples like the, the Native Americans, and but furthermore, that it couldn't apply to any people that uh, human beings might encounter in the future. And so, uh, and this is another thing I emphasize in the um, in the book, which is that the Church's condemnation of racism goes deeper than anything that could be either confirmed or undermined by biological science. It's not grounded in contingent empirical claims about um, you know psychological research into intelligence right. or anything like that. It's grounded in, in two considerations that go much deeper than that. And it has to do with philosophy and theology rather than empirical science. First of all, it's grounded in the idea that what makes human beings human is that they have rationality, they have intellect, the, the, the ability to grasp abstract ideas and to reason logically on the basis of them. And that this, for the kinds of reasons traditionally hammered out by thinkers like Thomas Aquinas, but really go back to the ancient Greeks, you know, thinkers like Plato, that this is an immaterial or non-bodily power. Uh, that it can't be reduced to just brain activity or anything else. So that um, it reflects uh, a power of the soul and not just of the body. And since all human beings, just by virtue of being human, have souls, uh, and our fundamental rights and obligations under natural law are grounded in our rational nature as creatures with souls, then it follows that all human beings, just by nature, have the same basic natural moral dignity, natural moral obligations and rights, and that, again, this is grounded <clears throat> in these truths of metaphysics or this you know, this area of philosophy that studies human nature and not just in, um, in empirical science, not just in biology. So that's one foundation of the Church's condemnation of racism and of chattel slavery and so forth, which is that it conflicts with what we know through philosophical reason, which is also incorporated into Catholic doctrine, about human nature. And the other foundation is in grace rather than in nature, which right. is that just as all human beings have uh, have sinned and are subject to the effects of original sin because of the sin of our first parents, in the same way all human beings are equally offered redemption from sin and the possibility of the beatific vision, eternal life in heaven with God, face-to-face knowledge of God, and so forth. And this is offered, as we know through Scripture and tradition, to all human beings universally. So we have the same natural origin, and we have the same supernatural, meaning beyond nature, the same supernatural end, and these are the deep philosophical and theological foundations for a kind of human equality that rules out racism and that rules out practices like chattel slavery. And because they're grounded in philosophy and theology, they're not going to be overthrown by further findings in empirical science and biology or what have you. Isn't it just so tragically ironic that some Catholics during this period justified their enslavement uh, on the grounds that these people were not Christians? That they were not Christian. Yeah, that they needed to be saved, and somehow this, this relationship, this slave relationship, was going to give the opportunity for them to yeah. be converted. Well, yeah, it's doubly tragic because, first of all, it ignores the fact that um, the rights to uh, life, liberty, and property and so forth are grounded in human nature, not in divine revelation. I mean, they're also grounded in divine revelation, but not just in that. So, as uh, De Las Casas and Vittoria point out, the fact that the, um, uh, the natives of the Americas and of Africa, uh, well, they were talking about the... Uh, uh, Native American context, but apply also to the African situation. The fact that they were not Christian before the Europeans arrived is irrelevant to the question of whether they could be enslaved, because they had uh, the rights to life, liberty, and property just by virtue of nature, not by virtue of, of, of being Christian. So they overlook that uh, point, which is itself a part of Catholic doctrine. And the other thing is that if you're going to draw people to... Uh, the Christian faith to conversion and thus to the salvation of their souls, uh, enslaving them and treating them brutally is not really huh. a good way to do that. It's not, no. it's not a good witness to the truth of the gospel. So 
you know, if someone tries to, you know, if someone tries to justify those brutal practices by reference to uh, the need to bring Christianity to these peoples, I mean, that's it's a terrible argument. Obviously, it's a counterproductive one. So, uh, to say the very least. So, yeah, you know, it's doubly I, it's, tragic uh, in that regard. It's also a sad part of our history that Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy, thought that he would find support for the Southern cause from the Vatican. And he really uh, tried to, I don't forget who was Pope at the time, but he really expected that he would get support because there were some Southern religious who were justifying Southern slavery in the name of the ch of church and its teachings. Well, yes, and in fact, um, uh, just, you know, just in fairness, as I pointed out uh, a few minutes ago, that there are, there are people who would like to blur the distinction between, you know, on the one hand, the indentured servitude and penal servitude that the church had not condemned previously, on the one hand, and on the other hand, chattel slavery. They blur that distinction in the interests of uh, trying to argue that the church has changed her doctrine in the past, and therefore she should change her doctrine again. So you have people who are rightly opposed to slavery who blur that distinction. It's only fair to point out that there were people in, in those days, in the 19th century, the time they're referring to, who also blur that distinction because they were trying to justify slavery, right? So they would say, well, you know, I mean, look, there were certain practices called slavery that the church didn't condemn in the past, so how, he, how can you condemn what's going on in the American South? Well, what's going on in the American South is not the sort of thing that the church uh, regarded previously as not wrong in principle. It's not the same thing as penal servitude or indentured servitude. It's a very different kind of thing and an intrinsically evil thing. So you had people on the other side of the fence blurring the distinction as well and playing fast and loose with biblical texts and with uh, the tradition of the Church in an illegitimate attempt to try to justify the African slave trade and slavery as it exists in the American South. And I think yeah. that's what's going on in the, in the, with the people that you mentioned. Again, I'm talking to Dr. Ed Fazer about his really must-read book. I, I hate to say that because I don't like to say it very often. Uh, All One in Christ, a Catholic critique of racism and critical race theory. And moving now to critical race theory, uh, this has really become a plague in our culture and especially in our universities, high schools, and even elementary schools. What what basically is a critical race theory? I would say that the the core uh, claim of critical race theory is that racism absolutely permeates every nook and cranny of every aspect of modern society and the the psyches of every member of modern society, especially whites, but also non-white people. Insofar as according to critical race theory. They have bought into or accepted the racial, the racist presuppositions of so-called white supremacy and whiteness and so on and so forth. So it's a very radical and you might say paranoid, uh, and totalitarian conception of racism that racism goes well beyond what most people ordinarily think about when they hear that term. And this ambiguity in the term is something that critical race theorists play off of when they peddle their ideology as it's somehow, you know, something that any decent person would accept, because how can any decent person not be against racism and so forth? But what most people think of when they hear racism is they think of explicit hostility toward people of other groups. They think of things like the KKK and cross burnings, or they think of segregation, or they think of apartheid in the American South. They think of uh, racial discrimination. And so they think that being opposed to racism would naturally involve being opposed to all those things and getting rid of uh, segregation, getting rid of laws that discriminate uh, against some races. But for critical race theory, all of that is nothing more than just the tip of the iceberg. And that racism goes far deeper than that. And indeed, even many of the things that people regard as stereotypically anti-racist are really, according to the critical race theorists, really themselves manifestations right. of racism. So what do I mean by that? Well, let me, let, me, let me give you a few examples. So first of all, 
critical race theory holds that racism is manifest in every racial disparity or inequity that exists. So if you have, like, in the, let's say 10% of a, the population of a, certain, of a country is of a certain race, but only 5% of the stockbrokers in that country are of that race, that's a disparity, that's an inequity, and that is itself <clears throat> a manifestation of racism. And if you suggest that, well, maybe it's not racism, maybe it reflects something else, like cultural differences between ethnic groups, critical race theory will say, no, that, to even suggest that is itself a manifestation of racism. Right. So there's this dogmatic insistence that any disparity or difference in economic outcomes is, by definition, racist. Then you have ideas like microaggressions and implicit bias. What are those? Well, microaggress microaggression is an act of racial hostility that's so subtle that even the person who's committing it has no idea he's doing it. So if you're, you know, you're jogging and you see a jogger of another race and you don't smile at that person, that's itself an act of racism. And hold on right if, there. We're yeah. going to take a short break, come back, and I just want to tell our listeners, what you'll hear in the second part of this show is an absolute, total refutation of these claims that Ed Fazer's talking about. We're talking about his new book, All One in Christ, is a Catholic critique of racism and critical race theory, and we'll be right back. I'm back with Professor Ed Fazer, teaches philosophy at Pasadena City College, author of many books. He's a Thomist, he's an Aristotelian Thomist, and he just takes apart the arguments behind critical race theory. And, and Ed, give our listeners a sense of how logic itself, and especially logical argumentation, can be used to undo their arguments yeah and so and so as a preamble of that let me just um wrap up a point i was making before we took the break which is to uh, say a little bit about how the deep racism that critical race theory claims to identify manifests itself so another way in which it's claimed to manifest itself is even in what uh are traditionally regarded as paradigmatically anti-racist policies namely the traditional civil rights movement so for the critical race theorists, you know, traditional civil rights ideas like colorblindness, the law being colorblind or neutral between people of different uh, different races, the idea of, of everybody having the same individual rights, the idea of the rule of law, where we ought to be governed by abstract principles of law that apply the same to everybody, uh, the idea that all racial discrimination is, is per se unjust. For critical race theory, all of that is not only wrong, but is itself a manifestation of racism, crazy as that sounds. Right. So you find critical race theorists analyzing these, you know, the different um, uh, legal decisions and bits of legislation that were part of the civil rights movement and arguing that really all of them benefited whites and not blacks, that nothing's really as it seems. It's just, there's a real paranoia and a, a really a, a perversity to critical race theory where everything that everybody's regarded as you know, the gold standard of anti-racist policy is really racism. And so you get popularizers of critical race theory like Ibram Kendi, who argue that racial discrimination is actually itself not unjust or racist. In fact, there ought to be more racial discrimination if it will generate equity, if it will uh, uh, eliminate disparities between races. And he thinks there ought to be discrimination against whites as long as it takes and as extensive as it as is needed in order to eliminate racial disparities and so forth. And so he thinks that, you know, he says that the real, the most dangerous uh, kind of racism that exists today is not uh, people who want to build some sort of, you know, explicit white supremacist ethnostate, but it's rather uh, the average person who, 
who wants a colorblind society. That, Kennedy says, is the most dangerous kind of racism. It's which was crazy which end, was the position of Martin Luther King. Exactly. So if you yeah, if you follow Ibram X. Kennedy's logic out, such as it is, it turns out that you know Martin Luther King is somehow a far more dangerous racist than the Ku Klux Klan. This is craziness. It's you know it inverts everything and it attributes racism to everything uh, in a way that. Um, it, you know, it entails this radically paranoid view of the world where you almost really can't trust anything or anybody. Everything might really be somehow a manifestation of racism, even if on the surface it seems to be the opposite. So you ask about the logical problems with this, and there are many, and one of them is that critical race theory is supposed to be a kind of social scientific analysis, a social scientific theory that explains social phenomena, that explains racial disparities and so on and so forth. But good science, as any philosopher of science could tell you, and this is a concept associated with the philosopher of science, Karl Popper, a good scientific claim, because a scientific claim is supposed to be an empirical claim, that is to say it's supposed to be telling you something about observable reality, about the way things happen to go uh, when they could have gone differently. Well, a good scientific claim, therefore, should be testable. It should be falsifiable. That is to say it should make predictions that we can go on to test and see whether the predictions come out. And if they pan out, that tends to confirm the theory, and if the observations contradict the theory, well, that gives us reason to reject the theory. But critical race theory is of its very nature untestable or unfalsifiable, because no matter what happens, you know, if you have explicitly racist policies, ah, okay, well, that, that shows our society is racist. But then if you have explicitly anti-racist policies, let's get rid of racial discrimination, let's be neutral between the races and so forth, well, it turns out that's racism too. Everything's racism. So if you define racism so broadly that anything anybody does, that even, you know, good old-fashioned, traditional, you know, JFK, Lyndon Johnson-type liberals who work for the great society, even they were really deep down racist and wanted and were working for a system of white supremacy and so forth, that it be, you know, even Martin Luther King's vision somehow is a manifestation of white supremacy, so that everything counts as racism, then the theory becomes totally untestable. It makes no predictions that you could check and that would, that would either falsify or verify the theory. And in that case, it's not really a scientific theory at all. It's a kind of bad metaphysics, really, that has well, it's no, a, it's a really means nothing to, rationalist defense. It's a means yeah, to power, that. right? Well, I think that's what it really is. As a matter of fact, sometimes critical race theorists are quite explicit about that. So, I, you know, I made reference to Ibram X. Kendi, who's one of the best-known and best-selling popularizers of critical race theory in the last few years uh, in his book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. And in that book, he explicitly says that this movement is not about changing minds and hearts. It's not about persuasion. And he says rational persuasion uh, doesn't work. And so what an anti-racist uh, ought to be pursuing is just power and the power to implement this critical race theory vision uh, rather than trying to persuade people. It's really an appeal to brute force. And yeah, it comes that down to a kind of, of like the power of shaming using social media and media. That's right, yeah. And you find writers like that also, you know, they, the, the very idea that there are such things as uh, neutral standards of rational argumentation, well, they reject that as itself just yet another ideology of racism. Um, as uh, Robin DeAngelo in her book White Fragility, she's another well-known popularizer of all these ideas, she says that uh, objectivity and individualism, treating people as individuals, in other words, as opposed to members of racial groups, that these are, quote, ideologies of racism. So there's really no such thing as objectivity. There's no such thing as neutral standards of rational argument. As nothing like fairness, basic fairness. That's right. That, so the idea that there are standards of fairness that apply to everybody, that's itself just a manifestation of racism. Now, if you take that view, you've got to have a couple problems here. One of them is that it reduces all human relations to really nothing more than power relations. So... There's no rational basis by which you can try to persuade people who disagree with you. You just have to, you know, you just have to impose your will on them, whatever form that takes. So it turns human society into a kind of a war of all against all. 
For another thing, though, it's a, it's really a self-refuting position, because if there are no objective, neutral, rational standards, right, right, then you couldn't justify critical race theory by such standards either. It turns out to be nothing more than the expression of the interests of critical race theorists, in which case, why should we accept it any more than we should accept the views that it's criticizing? It's, it's ultimately a self-defeating position, as all forms of relativism ultimately are. No, it reminds and me of what Joseph... it's really just in rhetoric. Reminds me of Joseph Heller's uh, concept of Catch-22. No matter what you do, you're a racist. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. It's the... And, you know, people think, if they don't think about this very deeply, they think, oh, that's a strength of the theory because, gee, it's got an answer for everything. But it's not a strength of the theory. It's a weakness of the theory. It shows how vacuous the theory is. You know, if everybody... There's the old expression, you know, if everybody's somebody, then nobody's anybody, right? <laughs> and in the same way, if everybody's, if everybody and everything is racist, then nothing's racist. The, the concept turns out to be evacuated or emptied of all content. And ironically, I think that just makes the term ultimately less effective, because if you just fling the word racist mm-hmm. at everybody, eventually it loses its force, people just roll their eyes, yeah, of course, everything's racist, blah, blah, blah. And so... In that way, I think there's a kind of rhetorically self-defeating nature about the um, about this sort of movement because it, it it can't sort of maintain this level of shrillness forever. Eventually, it just peters out. People get bored with it. it you know, the term racist is overdone, and that's why I think well, the, the, ki- the movement ultimately requires capturing the reins of power to maintain itself. Well, it comes down it to it when it comes down to when shaming no longer gets the results they want. I mean, it, when right. people can, you shame people right now, I mean, it's gotten traction because, you know, corporations, universities, individuals don't want to be labeled racist because the social media is ready to ruin their lives over that. Yeah. But do you think there'll be a point at which that won't work anymore? Well, I think they're, they're, they're likely one of two possible outcomes. One outcome is that the movement doesn't gain any more in the way of practical power, that is to say, influence over public policy, corporate policy, and so forth, than it already has. And then it gradually just peters out because people get more and more sick of hearing about it, and they roll their eyes at it, and the attempts to shame don't work anymore. And since that's the primary basis of the movement's power, it just loses its power. The other outcome, though, is that before that can happen, it imposes itself on society precisely by capturing power, by, you know, getting uh, critical race theory policies written into legislation, uh, deeply embedded in the bureaucracy and so forth. And, of course, this has already happened to some extent. Uh, and at that point, it basically becomes, you know, a situation where you have these elites uh, who are motivated by this ideology running things, and a population that's at odds with it and doesn't agree with this and isn't swallowing the Kool-Aid anymore, isn't buying this stuff anymore. And that's just a recipe for social chaos. Ultimately, a lot of that can be undone by, you know, the people who, who are peddling this stuff losing enough elections and so forth. But to the extent that it uh, embeds itself in the bureaucracy, it might last for some time and just gradually burn itself out over the course of a generation or so. Talking well, with I think it doctor, remains to be seen exactly what's going to happen. Talking with Dr. Ed Fazer about his brand new book, All One in Christ, a Catholic critique of racism and critical race theory from Ignatius. I th- really think everyone who cares about this issue should have it in their hand. And, you know, one tool you give people who read this book is how to use logic to defend uh, reasonable positions on this. And I think you should explain to them, you know, what is an ad hominem argument and how can you use that to defend yourself? Yeah, one of the things I point out in the book is that critical race theorists, the writings of critical race theorists, whether we're talking about the popularizers, like the people I've referred to already, Ibram Kendi, Robin D'Angelo, or whether we're talking about the more academic theorists who were the originators of the, of the movement, that these writers commit not just you know, empirical errors, social scientific mistakes here and there, and not just the occasional logical mistake that any writer might be capable of, but they they commit over and over again very simple and crude logical fallacies, among which 
uh, are ad hominem fallacies to which you just referred. Uh, by no means are those the only fallacies committed. So an ad hominem fallacy is the kind of fallacy that involves focusing on the person who made a claim uh, or who gives an argument rather than on the cogency of the argument itself or on the truth or falsity of the claim itself. It's a kind of changing the subject. And it comes in different forms. The most, the most well-known and obvious and crude form is what's called the abuse of ad hominem, where instead of answering what someone says or showing that the claim they made is false, you just call them a name. In this context, that would be calling them a racist or calling them a white supremacist or, or what have you. Or just calling Obviously, them white. Just calling them white. Or, or, or now, that's yeah. right. Right Now, just calling them white. Right. So, And you find critical race theory popularizers like D'Angelo who spell out this whole idea that, that whiteness is, by its very nature, racist, by its very nature, anti-black, and there can be no such thing as a positive white identity and so on and so forth. So that... Yeah, just saying, well, that's a white perspective, you know, is somehow supposed to refute what a person says. So that's the most crude sort of ad hominem, which is the abuse of ad hominem, just slapping a label on somebody and pretending to refute them that way. And that's disturbingly common in our public life now, where all you have to do is call someone a name and pretend you've thereby answered them. And there are other kinds of ad hominems, like uh, what's called the circumstantial ad hominem, where you dismiss an idea based on some alleged vested interest of someone who promotes the idea. So, again, if someone presents an argument against critical race theory, the critical race theorist might respond by saying, well, that's exactly what a white person would say because it serves your interests in upholding the existing system. That's like, you know, if I said that um, if, uh, if two people were arguing about uh, whether regulating the fast food industry was a good idea. You know, we should, should we put taxes on sodas or something? And somebody says, well, I don't think it's a good idea because I think people should be allowed to make health decisions for themselves and so on. And if somebody said, well, that's just what the soda companies, you know, want to think. <laughs> uh, or you work for the soda companies, therefore that must be why you're saying or it. You like no, or you like sodas. Or you like sodas, right. <laughs> exactly, yeah, that's that's a circumstantial ad hominem where you're, Dismissing an idea based on some alleged, allegedly uh, suspect circumstances of the person who's making the claim, and so you find these kind of fallacies throughout critical race theory literature. You also find uh, the fallacy of special pleading or an unjustifiable double standard. So, for example, on the one hand, we're told that inequities are of their very nature racist. Kendi famously says that as an anti-racist, when I see disparities, I see racism. That if there's a disparity between two groups in any respect, that must ipso facto, the very nature of the case, entail racism. But in fact, they don't do that consistently. So if um, black Americans were overrepresented in basketball or something, Kendi's not going to say that that's systemic racism. Or if uh, Asian Americans do better than whites in certain measures in STEM fields or whatever, he's not going to say that that's evidence of systemic racism. So there's an arbitrariness here. When you can use the inequity claim as a rhetorical point in favor of critical race theory, right. and all inequities are per se racist. But when you see evidence that cuts against it, that's just ignored. That's just dismissed. Or well, another example you, of... Let me, yeah. Before you go, I, I noticed that you mentioned that some critical race theorists have recommended tort remedies for racist speech. Better explain to us what that is, because that sounds scary. Yeah, well, you have you see in the critical race theory literature, and this is, it always starts out as a kind of you know an allegedly modest proposal, right? Maybe we should just entertain this as a possibility. Then these things morph into somehow into imperatives. We must do this on pain of being racist. And one of them is this, you know, just as the idea of racism has been expanded to include everything, everything everything ultimately is racist, even things that on the surface seem to be the opposite of racist, like racial discrimination, or being, being opposed to racial discrimination, somehow that's racist, okay? Well, in the same way, concepts like violence end up being expanded to the point where well, if you utter something that's allegedly racially insensitive, that's the kind of violence. It's a kind of verbal violence. Right. And it also, you know, generates, a, you know, a, a hostile environment and promotes ideas that are ultimately oppressive and so forth by the standards of the critical race theory, by the standards of the critical race theorists. 
So if that's the case, maybe speech that is, by the critical race theorist lights, racist, ought to be outlawed. Maybe there ought to be penalties. that you And you ought to you'd be to subject to civil suits. That's right. You'd be subject to civil penalties. Obviously, this sort of thing uh, or something like that exists on college campuses where you have, you know, certain uh, expressions are forbidden, whether it's an administration, you know, asking professors not to use them in the classroom or, uh, you know, the idea of hate speech and so forth. So this is the kind of thing that... Um, this is this is one of the respects in which critical race theory regards traditional liberalism and the traditional civil rights movement as insufficiently radical. And in fact, you know, would say that, well, the old-fashioned liberal idea of free speech, the kind of thing that the ACLU used to be associated with, right. that, you know, not only is that something that the critical race theorist doesn't support, but even regards it as itself a something that upholds uh, the racist, white supremacist order of things, etc., you know, you also bring in the term intersectionality. Tell us about that. Yeah. So the idea of intersectionality, which is associated with the critical race theorist Kimberly Crenshaw, is the idea that oppression goes much as as always with with uh, these writers. You know, things are always worse than they seem. You know, and there's never an end to rooting out oppression and 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 finding new ways to be offended or to claim to be a victim or to claim to be oppressed. In the case of intersectionality, the idea is that we can't just look at one particular identity that a person might associate himself or herself with and interpret their alleged oppression in those terms. We have to look at the intersection of identities. So someone might be oppressed because uh, they're black, or someone might be oppressed because they're disabled, or someone might be oppressed because they're gay. But if they're black, gay, and disabled, that's an intersection of different identities, which involves an intersection of different oppressions. So there's like a higher victim status, according to someone like that, because they're the subject of multiple kinds of oppression. And according to writers like Crenshaw, they're subject to a kind of oppression that even people who think of themselves as enlightened and critical and so forth don't see, because they only see the oppression of blacks, or they only see the oppression of Hispanics, or they only see the oppression of gays. But when you take intersectionality into account, you can see there's a unique kind of oppression that's invisible even to traditional activists who regard themselves as hostile to oppression. So the writers like this are always kind of one up, one upping each other in the oppression sweepstakes, you know, and <laughs> coming up with ever more creative ways to to complain about how society is run and to call for radical, uh, you know, well not reform but radical undermining of the social order somehow deeply uh, oppressive in, in, in ways that you can't even imagine. Who knows what they'll come up with 10 years from now? But they'll come up with something, I'm, I can guarantee that. You know, I noticed there was a study done recently of television commercials, which concluded that uh, African Americans are 500% overrepresented in commercials. And I would assume the reason for this is pressure within the entertainment industry to become, as it were, blameless on the charge of racism. Yeah, I think that, you know, because critical race theory and other so-called woke ideas have become, they've just kind of taken over the zeitgeist of the spirit of the age. The corporations decide, okay, well, just to avoid hassles, let's uh, appease uh, these people as far as we can, these activists and so forth. And in our advertising and in our human resources department policies and all that, uh, let's implement policies that are in line with what they say, and then they'll leave us alone, and we can go on and happily make our profits and so on and so forth. I think that's part of it. There's also the fact that some of the people who go into business themselves, you know, they come out of universities where they have this stuff shoveled into their minds, and so they're at least halfway sympathetic with it anyway. Um, there was an interesting article, I think, by Russell Jacoby a couple weeks ago in the tablet, where he points out that, you know, when the university was kind of on the upswing and there was a lot of hiring and so forth, a lot of people who would learn these ideas would go on to become professors themselves, and then they would just be recycled into the university, and these, these goofy ideas would just kind of recycle themselves within the university, but not have much influence without but as universities, you know, as, as the funding got tightened and hiring went down and the job markets in, in academia have been bad for a couple decades now, 
more and more of these people had to go outside the university. They couldn't just go to grad school and become professors themselves. So they ended up entering education, high school, right. uh, uh, grade school education, corporations, think tanks, the entertainment industry. So in this way, these ideas have spilled out. It's like a nuclear reactor leaking. You know, it's not contained right. within the reactor itself, but it spills out into the rest of society. And, you know, what you see on TV these days is part of the result of that. You know, we've got just a few minutes left. Again, I want to encourage listeners to get a copy of Ed Fazer's book, All One in Christ, A Catholic Critique of Racism and Critical Theory. Could you sort of capsulize the, the thing you want your readers to take away from your book? Well, what I'd like to take, them to take away is that these ideas are evil and dangerous. They are not merely eccentric or exaggerated, and they are not well-meaning. And I think there are a lot of people, maybe not so much as there were a few years ago, because people can see how sinister a lot of this stuff is with the defund the police and rioting and all this crazy stuff. People can see there's something really wrong here, something really messed up here. But I think there's still some people, in some cases out of naivete and wanting to think the best, and in other cases out of fear, but either way, who think, well, maybe we can kind of meet halfway you know, these ideas, right. maybe we can uh, sort of do dialogue with them and so forth. You cannot do that. That's right. And so part of the reason I wrote this book, and it was not a pleasant book to write, it's not a subject I, that I find intrinsically interesting. These writers are not interesting, they're not clever, they're not like interesting adversaries that you can learn something from. They're extremely low quality. And not only are they, are they intellectually flimsy, but they're just depressing to read because the, the literature hate. is so it's filled hate. with with hatred and yeah. exactly hatred, malice, a desire to tear down. That it, I only I wrote the book out of a sense of duty because people right. weren't saying what I thought had to be said about it, and so I think people really need to familiarize themselves with these ideas, which is why you know not only do I quote a lot of church documents like the ones we talked about earlier in the interview, but I also quote in detail the writings of critical race theorists themselves, so people can see that. These ideas really are noxious and radical. It's not some exaggeration that uh, you know right-wing activists and writers are manufacturing. Yes. It's really there. These things are really poisonous. And then we've got to we've got to uh, stop there. Uh, brilliant book, All One in Christ: A Catholic Critique of Racism and Critical Race Theory, available from Ignatius. And thanks so so much for taking the time to be with us again on Church and Culture. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And all of you are listening. Uh, I'll be back in a moment with another great guest.